DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We're joined now by the radio voice of the Utah Jazz, David Locke. He's on the T-Mobile special guest line. T-Mobile and Sprint are coming together to build the best wireless company around. Visit T-Mobile.com for online services and local store availability. David Locke brought to you every week by the Murdoch Auto Team. David, good morning. Good morning, DJ. How are you? Good. Hey, Let's get you started here with the biggest and newest headline in the NBA and what it may or may not mean for the Jazz and the Western Conference going forward. Uh, Houston's changing GMs. Daryl Morey is out, personal reasons. Uh, They're having a coaching change, too. I'm assuming the Warriors, I don't know if they're coming back at a championship level, but I'm assuming they're going to be at least top four in the West. Maybe they'll come back at a title level. Probably depends who they surround their big three with. But if they're top four in the West, somebody is out. I don't think it's the Lakers or the Clippers. Denver's a young team on the way up. Maybe it's them. Maybe they get hit with uh, Blazer or Warrior-like injuries. But I would think that they should be in pretty good shape. So I'm kind of leaning towards Houston. Obviously, they're the Jazz and other teams who want to move into the top four as well. How much does this shake up the West and, and how dramatically? Well, I think Houston's just got a really big decision that they have to make, which is, you know, are you um, – are you running this thing all the way out? So are you going to run the hardened ship all the way till it's over, um, the way Memphis did with Mike Conley and, and Mark Gasol? Or are you going to pull the plug um, a little bit maybe the way the Clippers did with Chris Paul and Blake Griffin a little earlier than everybody thought that, you know, that was, was not necessarily thought it was all the way over um, and still got some value for, for those two players. Um, not a huge value, but got some. So, you know, maybe they'd be a step earlier than that. Um, you know, there's an interesting game with them. They gave away a lot of picks. They gave away their pick for Robert Covington. They gave away the picks for Russell Westbrook, and there's the pick swaps. So rebuilding is difficult. There's actually an argument. I think if you go back and look at the Oklahoma City picks, I think they're later on, right? So they're like 27, 26 and 27 maybe. So there's actually an argument that they probably need to get bad fast so that by the time those picks come up, they're not um, – they don't need him as much. Um, or the other argument is that they just have to run the whole thing out. I, I'm not sure they have a, a middle ground where they where they go with Harden for another year and then make the move and then they start to rebuild and then they don't have their picks. So they're in a they're in a pickle. Um, and the other thing you have to try to figure out if you're them, Russell Westbrook was just awful in the bubble, but he was just brilliant before the stoppage of play. It was probably the best basketball he'd ever played when they spread the floor and gave him room and he got on top of the cup and he was really, really great. And then when he got COVID and then he didn't come back and there does seem to be a correlation between some of these soft tissue injuries and COVID, at least Michael Pina wrote a nice piece in the GQ and GQ about it. Um, and so is that, you know, do you just have to dismiss that period, that play as, as them, but otherwise, I mean, they were pretty good right before the bubble. So they have an interesting analysis of one, what they think of themselves two what they think they can do in the future. Um, and then three, you know, obviously they're rebuilding their entire coaching staff and their general manager. And I think you better decide, you know, maybe that middle piece before you go hire people. Can some teams be successful without building through the draft? Sure. I mean, the Lakers, um, is there a Laker draft pick of any relevance on that roster that I'm forgetting? Kuzma. Yeah, so they got one. So, yeah, I would say you can be successful. You know, Denver's obviously done as good a job as anyone building through the draft. Um, And then Houston doesn't have a draft pick on their roster that I can think of, so 
um, yeah, I mean, there's just one of one of two mechanisms of how you're going to do it. I mean, um, you know, Houston did to get James Harden. I'm trying to remember that deal, but it's Stephen Adams, a draft pick, Jeremy Lamb, who they drafted, and some future picks. So you're using your draft picks in that fashion. I, I I've generally always believed that if you're good, you probably are only ideally if you're really good, you're drafting every other year. Um, and you're using your pick to acquire assets on the other year. Now, we're, we were kind of on that path, and then we traded Grayson Allen and our pick for Mike Conley, and so now, you know, we probably, unless a really great offer comes, probably need to take our pick to get a, have a younger player that you can have as a rotation player. On the other end, if Terrell Brantlin, Mia One, Rajon Tucker, Jawan Morgan, or, you know, any of those four become rotation players, um, you've done it even better. You've hit with a second-round pick. David Locke, radio voice of the Utah Jazz, joining us. The coaching carousel is uh, is spinning right now. Doc Rivers is out with the Clippers, but he lands in Philly. And then uh, Tyron Liu now has a five-year deal with the Clippers. But I look at all of this and think uh, it's partly something PK said. Uh, I don't know what the number is, but at least half the league, maybe two-thirds or three-quarters of the league. I mean, not every coach is great, but, but a lot of them are pretty good, or they wouldn't have gotten to this point. And I look at Vogel's record, right? He's in Indiana. They lose to LeBron and the Heat three years in a row in six, seven, and six-game series. I think one was second round, the other two are conference finals. Paul George gets hurt. They're a lottery team. Paul George is back for the first year, but maybe not all the way back, and they go out in the first round. They fire Vogel. Now, since then, the Pacers haven't been out of the first round. They've been in it every year, but out in the first round every year. Vogel, meanwhile, gets LeBron, and now he wins the title. I mean, we can go nuts over the coaching, but aren't there 10 or 15 coaches in the league who, if you gave them the best player in the league, could get you a title pretty quick? Yeah, I think there's about five coaches that maybe have more influence on the game um, and their team than, than others. And then I actually think that number's, that next number is bigger. Um, there's, the coaching in the league is really fabulous. And um, those that aren't good get exposed really fast, right? Um, and then those that are around for a while get better. I don't think Mike Malone was particularly good three years ago, and I think he's really good now. So, you know, you probably need no different than any other job in life. You need some experience and probably no different than any other job if you're Frank Vogel at some point, the internal politics or whatever else that's going on at your job makes you a little less good at it. You get a chance to restart and think about what you, what you did there and, and chew on it. He went to Orlando and wasn't very good. No, or nobody's been good in Orlando. So, you know, you learn from every experience and you get better. So I'd say there's, you know, I think there's something to, you know, when, you know, Tyrone Lou will probably was pretty good in Cleveland. Obviously they won, um, you know, and then every coach gets their strength you know, labeled on them differently. I'm not sure, you know, Frank Vogel has been labeled a defensive coach. Well, maybe, but he had Roy Hibbert at his peak and he's had Anthony Davis. So, you know, was he a particularly good defensive coach in Orlando? I'd have to go back and look that, you know, that, that, um, so I think I kind of agree with you. I actually just think the number's bigger. I think the, the coaching in the league is really astronomically good. So you just went through and you listed all the Jazz young guys and said, you know, if one of them or two of them, however many, can become a rotational player, that's good. So as we head into the off season, they tried it last year by bringing in Moutier and Green. They've done it before with Joe Johnson and DL and so forth. In terms of trying to win immediately, 
Are the Jazz going to have a combination of trying to develop and go also with veterans? Because we've seen with the Lakers, the veterans, a guy like Rondo and Danny Green obviously helped them win. You need the stars at the top. Do you think that they, they're more inclined to go one way or the other or a combo of both? So, I mean, some of this is math. Um, you know, if Rudy's going to be at 30 and Donovan is going to be moving toward that and Joe is at, what, 14 and Boyan's at 18 – and then we're signing Jordan to something if we re-sign Jordan, and Mike's at 30, um, you know, that's your core six. And then um, I'm forgetting somebody probably, maybe not. Actually, that's probably your core six. And um, oh, Royce O'Neal is at now at 11, right? So there's your, course, there's your core. And now it's a lot to, like, to, if you're bringing, you don't usually have eight, nine, ten players on your roster that are all getting paid more than ten million, you know, eight, ten million dollars. That's there aren't a lot of rosters that have that. So you better at this point get some value out of a million dollar player. And that million dollar player is gonna is you know, the first choice is whether Brantley, One, Morgan or Tucker can can give you something. Your next choice is your draft pick who at 23 is actually I'm pretty impressed with what I've seen so far in the draft when I've looked at players. Um, and then, you know, then, then you've touched on the next one, which is the minimum players of Moutier and green. I, I'm, you know, Danny green, uh, Jeff green is what I was saying. Danny green. I don't think fits that he, he's made $15 million. So, um, you know, that, that, that wasn't just the kind of the bottom of the heap draft getting that pick. There's two things um, to answer your question. I, I am generally not the biggest believer in like the minimum contract. Like I think you got to try it, and um, for all the math reasons we just talked about, and then I just don't think the success rate's very good on it. And there's a re- you know reason usually those players are minimum contract. The the other side of it is um, this year maybe there's going to be more there. I mean there is a real chance that you know players are just not going to get paid, that the financial circumstances in the league are significantly worse. And there's a chance that teams are really going to be in, you know, not have the capability to roll out another $15 million of salary in free agency. And so not only will the cap come down, but that, you know, other than a, probably two or three players that stay on their team and Jeremy Grant, uh, there may not be a free agent that gets more than the mid-level exception. And then the mid-level exception may not be given to very many people. And so you might be able to, sign people for two year, $4 million deals and get fairly decent players in this market. It, it, it could be really dry. I mean, that, this is a, a side note. Unfortunately, the economic downturn, the pandemic issues, in my opinion, just everything favors major market, good teams. Um, and I, so I think that's going to make it hard on the jazz really, really hard. So that when there's suddenly no money on the table, you know, the Warriors can go get $300 million of financing like they did the other day. Like, I don't know that the Jazz can actually, you know, I don't know. I mean, they're in pretty good financial situation, but I don't know what they can go do. Um, the Spurs, a lower market team, had to sell part of their franchise. You know, whether they had to or not, they did. They sold part of their franchise the other day to bring in more cash during the beginning of the pandemic. Um, then you talk about, well, if there's really no money on the table and everyone's getting paid the same, um, and the financial burden's worse on the lower market teams, then... Um, then you end up with, you know, well, everyone's going to go to LA or everyone's going to, you know, if it's, if you're off, you both averaging four, offering $4 million, they're both going to, you know, they're playing for the Lakers, not the Jazz. 
So a big part of uh, improving the team is the best player has to get better. And I know in the past we've talked about, well, Donovan Mitchell shooting 34% from three. Can he get that up a couple points? And so he, he got a uh, shot 36.6% this year. Um, you know, can he add a step back three? And he did that. What, what is the next thing? What do you think Donovan's working on this offseason? What's he going to be able to do next season that he couldn't do this year? So I feel like Donovan got the – I mean, I think there's just this incredible – thing here. Donovan got the offseason, right? We saw Jamal Murray, Donovan Mitchell, they got the offseason. Tyler Hero is a rookie, got his offseason. They already had their offseason. We've already seen the player jump from year three to year four. That's what the bubble was. Those guys have had an offseason, whether it was just to mentally relax or understand it. And we saw all the things you just talked about. Um, most importantly, we saw him going to the free throw line. Um, so, you know, off the bounce three is the game changer that has how people are dealing with the defense. You know, the drop big defense was the primary defense in the NBA, 29 teams are playing it. And the answer is to hit the off the bounce three. And that's pretty unguardable at that, in that structure of a defense. So now all of a sudden you see the guys learn it. These guys are that good. Well, the next step then is, you know, finding a way to drive and, and still get to the rim and, and go to the free throw line. So I think we've seen it. Now he just has to refine it. But the major jump has actually happened already for Donovan. And it happened, you know, in, in year three to year four, which was inside that, that gap in the bubble. Yeah, that was when we had Kenny Smith on. That was his theory that they've already had that off season. Uh, we've seen, obviously, to me, Donovan. You know, just let me. Can I give you? A, can I go ahead? Uh, PK, can I interrupt? Because I actually just thought this was really interesting. Go ahead. Uh, it was Kevin Kevin Pelton of ESPN just talked about how we actually all have a false calendar in our heads because of when games start and stop. And so what we actually yeah. saw was this just natural progression of that, right. you know, he's five, six months older and it just happened to be that usually we don't see games at that time period. And, and it's not yeah. actually that they had their off season. They're just five or six months older. And this is the natural time where they get better. You know, we see with LeBron when it needs to be done, he handles the ball and everything runs through him. I don't know that the Jazz would commit to having Donovan have the ball at all the time and play the traditional point guard role, even though the traditional is a different definition now than it was then. But do you see him having the ball more, particularly when it's needed the most? Uh, I think Donovan's going to end up increasing his playmaking role a great deal on this roster. Um, so, yes. I mean, I think Donovan... Donovan's going to play with the ball in his hands almost all the time. I think. I think that's. Okay. I think that's the next reasonable step. Um, you know, I think there's a bunch of interesting discussions. Goran Dragic moved off the bench, during, moved to the bench during the during the regular season this year. Um, is that something that Mike Conley, at this stage of his career, is willing to do? And then you're starting Donovan with the ball in his hands, and maybe you're, you know, the way Miami closed with Goran, and then by the time the playoffs comes, Goran was. You know, starting again and pretty massive part of the team, but they're at the exact same age. So, is that something you do? I don't know. I think there's a lot of really interesting little kind of ways the team changes in that regard. I was kind of the opinion that they would, uh, and right now it's Joe and it's um, uh, Mike Conley and Joe Ingles. Uh, but you know, going forward, those guys are in their 30s. I always thought the kind of the ideal thing was. You have, you know, LeBron can handle the ball when it matters, um, but he's also this, uh, 
He's like, he's, uh, it's like in chess, you know, the queen is the piece that can do everything. And so because of matchups, sometimes you want him over here. Sometimes you want him over here to just be off the ball and rest. So you get to have him on the floor, but he's not spending all the energy. And so you still need to have multiple ball handlers, but how you deploy him just depends on the situation. You know, fourth quarter and playoffs are different than the grind of having to do it every possession all the way through the regular season. Do you think that's... There's going to be that mix going forward, and then Donovan handles the most important stuff. Or you really think it's just Donovan quarter one through four, game one through 82, and every playoff game? So, um, two things. One is, you know, we were the only team in the league, or we in Oklahoma City were the only two teams in the league that had a, three players around 1,000 pick and rolls last year um, with Ingles and Conley. I, I think, you know, Quinn's system has always been egalitarian, always moved the ball, always touched the ball. You know, a lot of the talk around Houston right now is just, you know, do people actually want to deal with watching James Harden just go one-on-one and just at some point team chemistry-wise, that just doesn't work it. in the league. You know, I think you have to be careful of that. So the, I would say I think that's the likelihood. The other one I would say is that, you know, from a very early stage, Quinn thought that Donovan was an Allen Iverson S score. Um, and so there's probably going to be some freedom of letting Donovan Mitchell just really put it in the basket. Um, and that's what he can do. So it's probably, you know, inside the egalitarian system that we have, um, you also, you know, you've got a really, really special talent. Let him go to work. All right. Well, we'll just leave with this number and then we got to run. But uh, he shot 51% from three in the bubble after shooting 36% in the season. And I think we're all waiting to see how much of that was because it was easier to shoot in the bubble and how much was that jump he was taking uh, with the four months off. And uh, I guess we can debate that another time, David, but that is something tantalizing for Jazz fans to think about. I mean, take a second and look at Donovan's numbers compared to Dame Lillard at the same stage of the career. And you can either do age or hit. They're better for eight. They're better on years because they both kind of played college and Donovan was old. And then take a look at Bradley Beal. That one you probably have to do by age because Bradley Beal came in the league at 19. Um it's an interesting comparison to try to see where those guys are compared to where Donovan's going. He's David Locke. He's the radio voice of the Jazz. David, thanks for coming on. We appreciate it. Okay. Sounds good, guys. And I'm very disappointed that we didn't do a whole show on whether the Jazz should trade for Russell Westbrook or James Harden. <laughs> okay, maybe next time. See ya. See ya. Lincoln Kennedy, Las Vegas Raider, radio analyst, Pac-12 TV network analyst. He joins us next to talk football. Kyle Whittingham at 9 o'clock. Stay with us. Football Fridays on the Zone Sports Network and coverage of the Las Vegas Raiders is brought to you by America First Credit Union, the exclusive home of the official Raider debit card. Same great features and benefits now with the silver and black. Learn more at AmericaFirst.com slash Raiders. Time to welcome in Lincoln Kennedy, Pac-12 Network TV analyst, Raider radio analyst. You hear the Raider games here on 97.5, 1280 The Zone and The Zone Sports Network. Lincoln, good morning. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you today? Good. I have one thing to say to you, though. Just one? Tony Romo, move (laughs) over. If Lincoln says they're about to throw the ball deep, that means they're about to throw the ball deep. Nice call, Lincoln. (laughs) Well, thank you very much. And the great thing is is that, you know, some things are a little bit easier to predict than uh, the Raiders are getting a big win in Kansas City. <laughs> I was listening to the game, and I heard you make that call. It's like, yeah, the Raiders just hit on the deep one, and uh, the quality of this quarterback, he's going to want to answer. They're going to take a shot deep here, Brent. 
Yeah, there's no doubt about it. You know what? Always turning the tide of momentum and when you pay attention to tendencies, especially the way offensive coordinators are in these days, it's easier to predict and call out. You know, I've been in this business. I started in newspapers and then sports radio took off, so I've been in it 35 years. And the way the business is now, you've got to be dramatic and over the top. I don't like to do that, Lincoln. That's not my style. But I'm going to come to you and say this was the greatest win in Las Vegas Raiders history. <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> You're not wrong. So it was a big win. But it's also answered a lot of things for me. You know, coming into the season, I thought the Raiders were a playoff-capable team. But they first had to get over the hump that was Kansas City. Now they've done it. The least worst that they could do is split. So that's a good step in the right direction. You know, it's a good lesson to all of us in life. No matter how good you are, you're not perfect. Um, and I think everybody here thinks a lot of Andy Reid. I haven't met him. He went to BYU. I haven't met him, but I know people who know him here, and they just they adore the guy. They think he's a great human being, and they think he's an outstanding football coach. And having said that, I wasn't listening to you at the start of the game. I was watching on TV at that point. I have to be in my car. And they, the Raiders uh, gave up like a seven-yard run to the Chiefs and maybe an eight-yard run. And whoever's calling the game on TV said the Raiders are giving up, I don't know, it was 130-whatever yards or one of the worst right. numbers. And, and I'm thinking... Okay, so run the ball. And they get 24 points at halftime. I don't really care about your play calling. If you got 24 points at halftime, however you get them is fine. But when the Raiders are shutting the Chiefs out in the third quarter and early in the fourth, I'm thinking, run the ball. But they got addicted to the pass. What the heck happened? I thought they did the Raiders a favor there. Well, I mean, I, I think, you know, you kind of get set in your ways when you have such a quarterback like Patrick Mahomes that he's going to be able to bail you out of anything. But there are times where offensive coordinators, and Andy Reid is, is also where he, he just – it's fails to manage the game properly. I mean, we've seen it. It's been something that's kind of plagued him throughout his history uh, as a head coach. But in my opinion, the the Raiders made second-half adjustments, and they've done it all season. Now, some people might sit there and say, well, why can't they have it in the first half or something like that? But uh, And I don't even know the answer to that one. But they, you know, other than the New England game where they just got shredded by the run and they couldn't seem to get off the field, they've, statistically they've been better in the second half of games that they played in. So I think that also adds to their record. But the one thing I will say about this Raiders team is that um, you know, if the offense scores at least 30 points, they're going to have a better chance of winning. They scored 40 against the Chiefs. Uh, and, yes, the Chiefs did get 32. They were only a touchdown away. But this offense needs to put pressure on the opposing offenses by scoring touchdowns. So we see at the college level there's some seminal moment in a program, uh, particularly when you've got a new coach and they're trying to build something and they get something done. It's a big win on the road or whatever it is, a big win at home against a, uh, a marquee team. And that sort of turns around the program and then they go on to have success. I can, With BYU and Utah, I can recite several examples. And in the Pac-12, since I grew up in the Phoenix area, I could tell you about that too. I'm wondering if that applies at the pro level that you need some moment to draw upon to say yeah we did it then so that was our turning point and we can go forward now because we've answered this question now we know we can be good the answer is yes um, and there are several examples that I can that come immediately to mind my one most notably is when I played forever our nemesis our biggest nemesis for the Raiders in my time there was the Denver Broncos and Mike Shanahan uh, Michael Shanahan um, we couldn't get over that hump. When we did, 
we started winning the division, we started going to the playoffs, and we eventually made a Super Bowl run. But we couldn't get over that hump. And take you back even further. You remember the nemesis that was, um, uh, well, not even further, but to take you back again, between Tom Brady and Peyton Manning. Until Peyton Manning beat Tom Brady, Indianapolis Colts weren't going anywhere. And they didn't have anything. And then after they beat Tom Brady, they ended up going to a Super Bowl. I say, this, I say that to say this. I don't think the Raiders are Super Bowl bound, but I think that with the extra team that's added in the playoffs, nine and seven, even possibly eight and eight, going to get in the playoffs. This is a signature win because one, it shows this team what they can do if they if they play a clean game, and of course they have a, a few balls that bounce their way. And two, it sets a precedent for the rest of the season. Now, with that being said, this next month of football for them is critical. They've got the Bucks, then they've got the Browns, the Chargers, and the Broncos, and then they face the Chiefs at Kansas City. So, you know, the next five games are something serious. And, yes, they're fortunate to be 3-2 and two right now, but they can ill afford to go 0-5 in the next month and have aspirations of the playoffs. Back to back. Come on, they're not going 0-5. I get your well, point. I'm, the, I'm just saying. The Bucks and the Browns. The Chargers, the Chargers you, can say, you can make an honest argument that the Chargers should have a better record than they did because they got too conservative in the second half after they had double-digit leads and they blew games. You never know what the Broncos, you, you absolutely never know what the Broncos, and I can promise you the Chiefs are going to try to right the ship. They've got the oh, talent yeah. to do it. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah, I'd, I agree with you on that. Uh, but I, I, work at, uh, I work at the TV, uh, CBS TV station here, and one of our sports producers is a Raider fan to the point mm-hmm. that, uh, you know, a lot of us feel like an intervention is needed, okay? I, I did one, story about, <laughs> one, story about, one story about Tim. And he's going to hear this, and he may not like me saying it on the radio, but I don't care. I'm saying it anyway. So the tuck rule game, he was oh. working there for the tuck rule game. He was furious. I, didn't want, I did not want to speak to him that Saturday night because he was just – he got his job done. That was great. But then I found out later on Monday he called the NFL commissioner's office to complain. Okay, that's how all in this guy is on the silver and black. He didn't care if they play in Southern California, Northern California, Nevada. But he said, and he said this uh, last night, we were talking about the Raiders' schedule. He said, they played the toughest part of the schedule. And I said, yeah, you got the Bucks next, and the Browns are 4-1. and one. It looked like an easy game when the schedule came out, but it doesn't look easy now. And he's like, yeah, and you get beyond the Chiefs game, though. And, you know, this steady diet of two Charger games, two Bronco games, the Falcons, the Jets— Three and two when they haven't played a team with the losing record, and I think only the Patriots are at five hundred. The Raiders have played a really tough schedule, and there's some to be said for that. Yeah, there is, and the fact that they came out three and two is, is a lot of people are thankful and grateful, and they're in the bye week, so hopefully they can get some of the injured players that they have had to deal with, get them back in healthy and ready to play. But I will I will point back to last season. Last year, this team lost to the Jacksonville Jaguars. This team lost to the New York Jets. All of those, and then there was one more, I can't remember, that had a losing record. Um, it happens. But you can't take anything for granted. You can't take scheduling for granted. You can't take anything for granted in the National Football League because, you know, you guys should try to explain to me this. How does how it seem like historically the Chargers start off poorly in the first eight games, and then the last eight games they turn it on and they look like they're playoff bound? How does that happen? You know, it, it just it just does. So you can't take anything for granted. Yes, it might look good on paper, but they still have to go out and do it. Do you think that the Raiders showed a formula on how to beat the Chiefs? No, it was a culmination of what everyone else was doing, and they had just enough offensive talent to outlast them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because if you go back to the Tennessee game in the playoffs, I think the Titans were the first one I saw rush three and try to have a spy. 
the Raiders tried to do that as, as well. And the only thing I said about that and before is, like, if you have a spy, you've got to make sure the spy can catch the quarterback. Um, but you also saw New England do it, um, and there was uh, the well, the Chargers rushed four because they have four good down linemen to rush. Uh, but it, the thing is that you don't want to blitz Patrick Mahomes. You want to try to lay back and play defense and or, or zone and try to cover double cover some of those uh, those crossing routes because they run a lot of scissors and crossing routes. Uh, but the thing is that you, you when Patrick Mahomes started looking down at the rush then it becomes advantage defense all the way because that's when a quarterback becomes susceptible to making a mistake or, or panicking and not being able to get, his, get the ball to his receivers. You know, I'm, I'm really interested in just how football continues to evolve, you know, and for every move that offenses make, defenses have a counter and then offensives counter, it comes full circle to a degree. I grew up, I grew up in San Diego, a Charger fan, mm-hmm. and, and I'm not happy about the move to L.A., but let's not get hung up on that. Uh, and I watched the Raiders throw the ball deep to Cliff Branch, right? right? The vertical passing game, if Al Davis said it once, he said it a million times. But defenses started uh, getting to the quarterback and blitzing more, and the, the Chargers' Eric Coriel thing, it morphs into this mid-range passing game to the, to the Charlie Joiners of the world, right? And mm-hmm. then it keeps the, the, uh, the blitzes get more intense and the Bears really bring it, and it gets to the point where Peyton Manning and Tom Brady are throwing these three- and four-yard patterns, get the ball out, don't get hit, stay healthy, will convert on third down. And then I'm watching the Raiders, and it's back to the vertical passing game with Henry Ruggs. Two catches for an average of 59 yards. Can the Raiders sustain that, throwing the ball yeah. deep? Because it's not how the game's evolved. Well, I mean, think about it. This game goes to revolutions. It, 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 it eventually comes back around. You know, once upon a time, the power running game in the 90s was king with the Cowboys, two backs. The fullback sort of faded away and become somewhat obsolete. Well, Gruden now has it a part of his offense, like a number of teams have it a part of their offense, the Ravens as well. These things tend to come back um, and revolve back. And to answer your question, can the Raiders sustain it? Yes, that's the reason why they went out and got Henry Ruggs III. That's the reason why they went out and got Nelson Aguilar off of the free agency wire, because they wanted to stretch the defense. And the thing about the Chiefs game, and when it comes to Ruggs, you know, the first ball that Derek put up was a 50-50 ball. And Derek, you know, trusts, and I've talked to him, he he trusts Henry Ruggs III. So he went up and Ruggs caught that ball over a defender. The defender had pretty good coverage, caught it over the defender. Then all of a sudden Derek can stick out his chest. On the second pass, the 72-yard one, if you remember, the Chiefs were playing quarters coverage, and the safety jumped the dig route by the tight end because they thought they were going to go to Waller. In the past, that's been a tendency, and that's why they did it. And then on top of that, Gruden ran a skinny post to Ruggs. Ruggs, the ward, was a covering, um, it was a defensive back was covering the Chiefs, um, covering Ruggs, and he laid off him. He was lax because he thought he had inside help with the safety. He didn't see the safety jump the dig route. Once that happened, you know, Carr went up top. It was a 72-yard touchdown. There was nothing that Ward could do. I, you know, the fact is Derek's going through his progressions because he trusts his line. He knows he's got a running game that he can rely on. But more importantly, he's got receivers that can take the top off of the defense now. And that's what he did in last week's game against the Chiefs. It's sort of incidental, Link, in the way it's worked out. But I'm wondering, do the Raiders know, the, the management, the leadership, the communication folks, that you're on Salt Lake Radio promoting the, uh, the Raiders the way this thing has turned out? You know what? I, I think you, know, you talk about things evolving. Now that the Raiders have a home and they can call Las Vegas their home, they've got a stadium that's totally dedicated to them. They've got a new fan base that they can work on. They're spreading out. Raider Nation has been international ever since I can remember. Um, everywhere we've gone, there's been a, a great following. 
This is this is one of the things that you just add on. I'm pleased to be with you guys uh, every week. Pleased to talk football, whether it's college or pro. I'm happy that the Raiders are doing well, so it gives me something positive to talk about. Just don't bring up the tough road again, please. That's a sore moment. <laughs> <laughs> I was there. I don't, I'm trying, not trying not to relive it. I got to relive it for the next week and a half. Well, until Brady goes away. <laughs> if, if if you come up to Salt Lake sometime, you can meet Tim. You know, when we're past all the social distancing stuff. But Tim would probably meet you in a park at 40 yards. He doesn't care. He wants he wants to talk Raider football. Uh, Le'Veon Bell, I'm curious what you think of this. He's obviously talented. He obviously has problems interacting with others, right? It didn't work in Pittsburgh, and it didn't work in New York. How much do you buy into strong leadership, um, a talented group that's a bunch of winners that doesn't appear to tolerate any nonsense? How much do you trust a guy to, to fall in line and fit in in that situation and how much could that leverage his next contract or the next contract be a problem if it happens? Where, where is this going with Bell? How is this going to play out? I think Le'Veon becomes a ring chaser. We, we see it in basketball, guys. We see you know, certain teams, the rich get richer. I think Le'Veon at this particular point becomes a ring chaser because he, you know, you, you're, the one-year deal to Kansas City, I've got to believe because I know Andy Reid, I know him personally, that he called Le'Veon and said, look, you're not going to be the main go-to guy. We're not going to rely heavily on you like you, that teams have done in the past, both Pittsburgh and Jets. We've got enough weapons. You come here, you have a good chance of winning a championship. And I had to believe, because he's already got his money, he's guaranteed money from the Jets. It wasn't about money this year. So I had to believe that's exactly what it comes down to. Play a one-year deal, see where you are. Andy Reid will get you, know, you, get you for basically the league minimum. So get you cheap to utilize you. He's good catching the ball out of the backfield. He's good running the ball between the tackles. So he's everything that a back, you know, Andy Reid needs uh, for a running back in his offense. This is the rich gets richer. This, the Kansas City team just got offensively stronger by adding Bell to their roster. All right, we will talk Pac-12 football with you as the season gets a little closer coming up November 7th. So we're still, uh, we're still a few weeks away, but we're looking forward to it. And uh, thanks for coming on, Lincoln. We'll talk to you again. Anytime, guys. Be well. All right. Lincoln Kennedy, Raider radio analyst and Pac-12 network analyst. And uh, PK, I just can't believe how well this worked out. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> you see him at the Pac-12 media day, and you're thinking, I've seen this guy. I've heard this guy. This should be our guy. And he's really good on the Pac-12 stuff. And now Pac-12 doesn't start until November. He gets the Raider gig. I don't think he had it when you met him. He gets the Raider gig. And they move to Vegas, and our station picks up their games, and they get good and relevant again. They've had a period they haven't been any good, they haven't been relevant, but now they are. They just took down yeah, the Super you Bowl. You talk champs. about magic happens. Wow, a whole bunch of things yeah. had to happen. Yeah, and you know, I've I've known he's been good for a number of years, but obviously, I did not know he'd be working for the Raiders, and the Raiders would move to Vegas, and they beat KC, and and we're close. If if I'm the Raiders, man, I just love him coming on a Salt Lake station talking about the Raiders because you can draw folks from here very easily and why wouldn't you you know the more the more the merrier when it comes to this because you're you're appealing to as many people as you can possibly appeal to yeah and the Raiders, uh, we know they're going to draw from L.A. Well, they're going to draw from Vegas. They're going to draw from L.A. They're going to still draw some people from the Bay Area, but they should be drawn a little bit from Phoenix. I mean, Phoenix, they got their own team uh, in Arizona. I don't, I don't but, see that. Though. But they're Raider fans everywhere. I think some people will Yeah, but up. I mean, they, but they're, they're, you already have them. Yes, but you also get, um, when you live in the Sun Belt, all the visiting teams are coming in, too. So whatever you can. But Salt Lake obviously is a bigger opportunity than Phoenix because Phoenix, Arizona's got its own team. 
Uh, and and so we don't here. So it's. And a big I think uptick. as the Rams develop there or redevelop, and maybe the Chargers develop, there'll be less and less. This is a golden opportunity because we're unattached. We're single. Yeah. <laughs> come come get us, man. Why not? You can change allegiances at the pro level. Sure, yeah, you look, can. Look at Yak. <laughs> yeah. Yaks, yaks, yaks got BYU dances and ward mixers in his mind. No, I'm single. That's the thing. I just had this thought of a singles ward and pro. Yeah, I can see it on your face. Whoa, it's a perfect opportunity to really capture but something. The, the point is very valid, though. Right. Every time you sell another season ticket, good for you. And they can sell some season tickets. Oh, up absolutely. Here. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 at 1280. The zone. Kyle Winningham is here talking youth football in 15 minutes. Stay with us. Nothing else matters, fellas. Every day we go to work. Football is back, and the Zone Sports Network has you covered as the Cougars continue to bulldoze through their schedule and the Utes and Aggies get set for the start of their season. You gotta go faster, faster. Nobody will bring you better coverage of your team than the Zone Sports Network. This is your home of the best college football coverage in Utah. Turn me up all day. 97.5-1280 The Zone in the Zone Sports Network. DJ and PK, it's 97.5 and 1280 The Zone. We are joined now uh, in a minute by Kyle Whittingham. Not now. He's coming up in the next segment. Uh, so stay with us for that. We'll be talking some college football. DJ and PK is brought to you in part by Syringa Networks, home to complete business telecom and IT solutions, backed by an industry-leading SLA that guarantees the uptime your business needs. It's effective communications for 21st century Utah. Get started now at syringanetworks.net. All right. The question, look into your crystal balls. What's going to happen in sports this weekend starting Friday with BYU? What happens first? Look into your crystal balls. Pardon? (laughs) (laughs) Funny then, funny now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Funny always. Uh, Craig says the Dodgers are going to come back and beat the Braves and go to the World Series. Ooh, that would be huge. That would be, because I don't think we see any momentum for the Dodgers right now. Kershaw just got beat. That's your guy, and you're thinking, oh, we were going to win that and beat 2-2. Now we're down 3-1. Man, that, and that's there's no mojo here. Houston at least has some momentum. I still don't think they're going to do it, but at least they got some momentum. Agreed. Didn't the Dodgers look deflated at the end of that to you? Oh, absolutely, yes. <laughs> yeah. It looked like, oh, here we go, man. We've yeah. gagged again. We've <laughs> had a phenomenal regular season, like eight years in a row. We haven't got a gun. 1988, I mean, 1988 in L.A. has replaced 1984 up here. I mean, we can just recite it. My gosh. I mean, I was living there at the time, and it was such a big deal, obviously. And and we've been hearing it. You expect a franchise that has had so much regular season success to do something more in the postseason. And maybe they got jobbed by the Astros that year because if you look at some of the numbers, when the Astros got home, it was certainly much more startling. So uh, maybe it's unfair, but nevertheless, it just doesn't look good right now. And the Astros, with Baker Jr. running the show, yeah, it looked like they can win two ball games. That's Dusty Baker Jr. if you didn't follow PK there throwing your curveballs. It's no uh, curveballs, it's straight heat. <laughs> I don't throw curveballs, I throw straight gas. So we had uh, we had someone uh, <laughs> come up with this prediction. You ready? Justin says, Sark is going to coach Bama to a win. And already there's a, apparently Desmond Howard set out some, I haven't seen the tweet, a little maybe on the cryptic side. 
Yach's looking for it here. Uh, but it references something about Saban coaching, and thinking is that he's getting a second test. It may have been a false positive. Desmond Howard, I believe Nick Saban will be on the field coaching tomorrow. Enjoy your Friday. <laughs> I'm going to enjoy my Friday. He just throws that out. I mean, here we're just like, oh, yeah, fine. But down in SEC country, you know, the Georgia and Alabama border each other, so this is a big deal. You know, they're all, oh, Nick's going to be there, you know. So it, I, I guess uh, Desmond has some info that it's a, a false positive and Nick is back. And don't we all want him throwing headsets on the sideline and staring people down? Well, Desmond I, Howard I should have an idea of what he's talking about. Stream. Desmond Howard. <laughs> Jeez, can you tone down the laugh a little bit on the game day? <laughs> Jeez. But your point is, he's hanging out with people who ought to know us, and he tweets that out. He's not just guessing and making stuff up out of thin air. He knows something. If I'm Nick Saban, I come out, like in the second series, and I just walk out of the tunnel and walk through the tunnel over to the sidelines. I don't come out with the team. Make it even more dramatic. Oh, you want a little Rick Patino entry there? Put a couple priests behind him? Uh, <laughs> oh, that's too over the top. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't invoke the name of the Lord uh, in this situation like Baker Jr. did with uh, Houston. But, uh, yeah, I would maybe a combo of uh, Patino and uh, Willis Reed. (laughs) You should tape up his leg and limp out. (laughs) Come out, have it be so dramatic, and just have the scowl on your face and just kind of grab the headphones really aggressively, jam them onto your head, and just say, let's go. Maybe they could be like a, a parade float, and there could be like some kind of throne, and he could just ride out. He shouldn't even have to walk. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, well, I, I hope he does coach, obviously. I hope they all can do that. Because I had heard that, uh, you know, Kirby Smart and what's it, uh, trying to beat the mentor type thing, and Nick Saban has some phenomenal record against people that he's coached with. And so uh, that if Nick isn't there – then Kirby Smart, Kirby Smart can't get the win. He can't. Uh, all he can do is uh, kick uh, Nick Saban's asterisk. You don't want that. Hell, because he wouldn't be there. So it would be somewhat of an asterisk. And I just as soon have him there. Kyle Whittingham is coming up next. DJ and PK. It's ninety-seven five and twelve eighty. The zone.